0: is we're going to start a three-part Advent series. So we're going through uh, the, uh, the book of Revelation. We have been going through the book of Revelation, uh, talking about the, the mystery of Revelation. But we're going to stay in Revelation a little bit, but kind of look at it through the lens of Christmas. So the mystery of Christmas. And this week's Advent theme, as we remember, uh, Advent, Advent simply means arrival. I was asked at uh, my CrossFit gym this week, Hey, Rich, what does Advent mean? And I told him, well, this simply means arrival. When we look forward, we look back to the arrival of Jesus and back again to, or ahead into the future as we look at Jesus when he comes again. And this is what we celebrate as we look forward to Christmas, our focus on Jesus and his, and his birth. And uh, this theme, this week's theme, as we go through the Advent theme last week, we talked about hope is peace. And uh, as you may know, if you're paying attention to the news There is a a big lack of peace in the world today, isn't there? And so our search for peace may seem quite elusive as we kind of wrestle with the news and all that's happening in the world today, and maybe even in our own personal lives. So you're familiar with what happened, uh, uh, anyone hear about what happened at the University of Nevada there? There was a shooting, which is becoming more and more common these days, and that's that's the most sad statistic of it all, that it's like becoming normal that people are being shot at schools and universities. I mean, it is, it is just outrageous. Russia, the invasion of Ukraine, the war continues to wage on. Uh, Israel is in an all-out war with Hamas, and that whole situation in the Middle East is very unstable. Many people dying, and it is uh, spilling over into American politics, of course. Uh, you may have heard recently, so my alma mater at Penn, the... Uh, the president recently resigned or was forced to resign. Who knows what happened behind the scenes because of some comments that were made before Congress about anti-Semitism and enforcement of anti-discrimination policies and all that. I mean, it's just a big mess. Like, the world is a mess. So we talk about Christmas and the Prince, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, yet at the same time, what is our context is just basically the opposite of that. It seems like whenever we turn to the news or whenever you flip into your screen or you talk with someone, there's something that's happening that is... Um, that is very difficult uh, to deal with. And, uh, you know, add that to your, you know, to your personal life, right? Maybe you're worried about your finances or uh, you're getting mad at the guy who cut you off on the road or if it's me, the, the person who cut me off twice in a row on the road and trying to maintain a sense of, of peace peaceful reaction, which I'm not always so successful with. And I don't know about you, know what I'm talking about. You know, you cut me off, I'll cut you off. You flip me the bird, I'll flip you two birds, you know, it's this kind of reactionary, natural kind of way that we want to uh, respond. And we see that on, in, the, in the national level too, right? So you bomb me, I'm going to bomb you. You capture my people, I'll capture your people. And so on and so forth, and so it perpetuates a cycle of violence and s- seems like peace is never, um, never going to happen in the world today. It's like this, I'm just going to stick it to them kind of attitude. And I see it in myself... You know, if I'm if I'm driving, or you know, if someone does something to me that's a little offensive, my natural reaction is to want to kind of just give it to them back. But certainly, the mystery of Christmas, which we're talking about today, is this: is how do we, in a world that is full of so much violence or oppression or tension or stress uh, at almost every single level of our lives, how in the world do we reconcile that with the sense? of who Jesus is and what Christmas is all about, the coming of Jesus, who is known, as, as it says in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, as the Prince of Peace. How do, how do, those, how do we reconcile those ideas in the Scriptures? Particularly, interestingly enough, the book of Revelation give us some clues as to how we can think about uh, Jesus as the Prince of Peace in a time of strife and war. So today's message, as we look at an interesting image in the book of Revelation is called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and we'll be looking briefly at that part of the mysterious book of Revelation. But before we do that, uh, let's take a moment and uh, let's pray. My heart is a little bit heavy today. Um, well, we can pray for Mike. We can pray for the children's home over the next two weeks. i will show you some more video of what our friends, the Hoffmans, are doing. It seemed like a really professionally produced video. Well, it was because our friends, Natalie and Aaron Hahn, who they helped produce that, and there's some footage. That, but anyway, it's, it's actually something our friends is, are doing uh, to care for these orphaned uh, special needs kids. So we'll pray for them. Um, but my heart is especially heavy today, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say that one of my friends in Bolivia, who we've prayed for before, his name is Hilton, he passed away this morning. Um, he's a good friend of mine, and it's, it's a little bit shocking for me. So, I mean, we've been praying for him, and he had a stroke his brain filled with blood and he was holding on for a little bit of stable, but uh, early this morning he passed away. So uh, if we could pray for him and his wife Susie, they're doing such incredible work among the poor in uh, La Paz, Bolivia. But let's, let's just pray. There's, there's, it's heavy. You know, I know there's a lot of heaviness. Maybe you're bringing some things in and there's all this, <laughs> the weight of the world can rest on our shoulders. Well, let's put it in the hands of the one who can handle it uh, right now for a moment before we continue on. So, so Lord, uh, it's with a heavy heart, but but with still with a sense of joy, hope, and expectation that we, we come before you today um, with, with some real pain and suffering in the world that's happening, God. And uh, we, we ask for your mercy. Lord, we don't have the words necessary to express. I can't be eloquent enough to describe or to understand uh, what, what's happening in the world today or in the lives of our friends and family, but we do ask, God, we come before you as a good father and as the giver of joy and the giver of life, that your kingdom would come and will be done. We pray, Lord, for for, um, Susie as she mourns the loss of uh, her husband Hilton, that um, the community would continue to come around her and support her and love her, and that even in Hilton's death, as we're even seeing, that your kingdom would extend to that neighborhood and they would realize what an impact that they are making through you and that you would get glory for yourself in that poor neighborhood where they're ministering. Uh, we pray, God, that um, for the war in, uh, that's happening between Israel and Hamas and the Palestinians and Israelis and all that, that whole mess, God, we pray for peace. We ask that the kingdom of God would break through, that you would break through to people in dreams and visions, as we're hearing about, through, uh, through people's thoughts and minds and hearts. Would you move uh, the leaders, the national-level leaders and the hearts of the people to, uh, to turn to you and God, and that you would do what we cannot do, the people, impossibly possibly, we, we just can't do it, God, but you can. So we put that situation into your hand and then you're the people that you love who are being hurt. And we finally, God, we do pray for the children's home and your work there, that you would provide an abundance to them. And Mike Kingsley, as he's uh, suffering with his foot, we pray that that wouldn't get any worse, but you would heal him quickly. And every other burden, Lord, there's so much to pray for, but we just, we lay it down before you at your altar and just say, would you carry it for us? Would you carry us today as we carry the weight uh, that the world puts on us? Um, So Lord, have your way. We love you, Jesus, and thank you for this time. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, um, so if you want to start flipping open your Bible, getting ready... We're going to be in a big section, so I'm going to be flipping around, so it might be more even more helpful than usual to have your Bible open. So we're going to be in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 4 and six, four through 6. So I'm going to look at selected verses, and I'm going to be summarizing a lot as well, just because uh, to read it would take, uh, take a lot longer. But uh, maybe it's because, as we look at this, maybe it's because we're surrounded by pictures of, of Santa Claus, even in church, or elves, or peaceful nativity scenes, we kind of get this picture of Christmas being this um, just that, that it's like this kind of happy place where, you know, these little uh, figurines like to sit still and have s- snow sprinkling in the background and it's all nice. But what most people don't realize is that the original Christmas was actually written in the context of a lot of oppression and violence. Uh, the, the first Christmas, when we're talking about when Jesus was actually born, there was uh, a lot of tension, violence, stress, all of it. Herod was in power. So if you knew anything about King Herod, he was power hungry. He was a narcissistic leader who oppressed people. There was a huge gap between the rich and the poor. People were living in poverty and in slavery, and human trafficking was the cultural norm. And as the story goes, as we see it written in the Gospels, is that Herod killed all the children two years and younger, and had them ordered to be cho- So this, it doesn't get much worse than this. It was pretty bad. And so as Jesus was being born, um, it, was, it was about as bad as it could get. So the, the message of Christmas, in fact, it's for people living in a war-torn environment or in a war-torn world. That was the, the original context of the first, the OG Christmas. That's what we're talking about. So we need to keep that in mind. That These, these events surrounding the birth of Jesus uh, that were prevalent in the first century are pretty applicable today as we're looking at um, you know whether it's the persecuted church it, that's happening today, many millions of people being persecuted for their faith, or war that's affecting different nations, even spilling over to nations where there's no direct war. But we finished our uh, review of Book of Revelation, so over the past eight weeks, we did a, a series in the first few books, and what we saw, there was an introduction of what Revelation was all about, and then Jesus addresses these seven churches in the province or in the, the in Asia and it kind of goes in a like a clockwise manner around those cities. And so he addresses them and gives a specific message for each of those churches, which as we saw were just as relevant today as they were then. And no so now what we're gonna do is we're gonna move into chapters four or six, give a brief overview and I encourage you if you want to fill it in to read it on your own. I mean it's really interesting stuff and I'll try to help you out as much as I can to give you some context context for it. But what John sees is he sees this another doorway appears. Okay, so he sees this doorway to heaven, and he's caught up by the Spirit and gets this picture of what it's like in heaven. And so this is actually where the apocalypse or the vision, the revelation, the the um, of the revelation the, the the story is named or the book is named after. This is where it gets its name from. And, and this is kind of where it starts. So the, the, the first part was just leading up, was the introductory to what Jesus is about to say. Now he actually experiences the vision. In some ways, you could say this is where it really kind of begins, but not that the, the first three chapters weren't important. But we see again and again, there's these glimpses of worship, and this is kind of the key. In the, he's caught up in the throne room, and he sees what worship looks like in heaven. I mean, wouldn't that be curious to kind of get a glimpse of what worship would be like in heaven. And this is what, uh, what John gets to see. So the secret, as we see, one of the first things that we see, kind of there's the secret to peace on earth, good will to men, that the angels, remember at the, the Christmas scene where the angels come down and they announce peace to all mankind. It's as if heaven kind of broke into a moment and showed that the shepherds got to experience this heavenly worship. And so there's something to the worship that happens in the throne room of God that is the secret to peace on earth. There's some connection there that we see again in Jesus being the central figure for making that happen. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, we get the most, probably the most vivid picture of what worship is in all of the scriptures. So it's actually a very good book for exploring this mystery of peace as we look at in, the, in a war-torn society. So let me go back. Actually, there's two places. So if you could pull up Revelation 1 For me, there's only two places where peace is explicitly mentioned in the book of Revelation. So we're going to use that as two anchors. In the beginning, it gives a little insight. So back to Revelation 1, I'm going to skip forward in a moment. But just to go back for just a moment, he says, To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne or the sevenfold spirit, or the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So this is just a standard introductory where often an author will say, grace and peace to you, as a salutation, as as an introduction to the letter. But he's saying here is one of the key things we can see is that the true lasting peace that kind of cuts through past, present, and future the only kind of lasting peace that can exist in the past, now, or in the ages to come, is through this, through Jesus, the King of Kings. That it's through the establishment of God's kingdom on earth that peace is only made possible. And so, without without Jesus, the good news is, or the bad news is, is that without Jesus, without the fulfillment of His kingdom coming a second time, this is what Advent is about. Until that point there's not gonna be a fulfillment of peace on earth. So we can pray, we can seek out peace and we can see advancement of God's kingdom, but it's not gonna be fulfilled completely until Jesus comes back again. But the good news is that he inaugurated the inbreaking of his peace through his death and resurrection. And now we can live in the tension of what's the now and the not yet of the kingdom where the kingdom has come, but it is not fully here yet. And in the meantime, we deal with war and all of its children, so to speak. So the role of followers, what our role is, is to then continually seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in seeking the kingdom and pursuing Jesus, the kingdom of God breaks in through God's supernatural uh, inbreaking. This is what John says in um, just a reference about peace. In Jesus says to his disciples right before he, he left in a way that he's, he's distinguishing. Listen, the peace that I give is not the way you're going to get it, the way the world gives it to it. And this is an incredibly comforting verse that Jesus said to his disciples right before he was crucified. Let's read together. John fourteen twenty seven. he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Listen, you, you want a good go-to verse? You're stressed out? You're, not, you're feeling what the world's given and not what Jesus is given? John 14, 27. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave to you. And it's different. It is entirely different. The kind of peace in the world is, we're gonna, pieces what is the, like Pax Romana, it's like, well, we'll just destroy everybody and then there's going to be peace because everything's destroyed and you're subjugated. That's a version of peace you could have. Or you could say, you know, uh, peace is just what we could, we could offer uh, you for a temporary high. And people look to peace, to, whether it's some substance or some kind of entertainment or, some, or even work. Or we try to fill ourselves with things to give us peace, but it is only temporary. It will we'll, we'll only last a certain amount of time when the peace that Jesus offers is past, present, and future. It intersects because Jesus, he was and is and is to come, and so his peace is as well. Okay, so the other instance, when we look at where um, peace is mentioned, so now back to chapter 6, if you're in your scripture. If you want to look at 6-4, Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, Peace is mentioned, but it's not mentioned in the good sense. In fact, it's mentioned in the context of a horse, this horseman of the apocalypse, who is given power to take peace away from the earth. In other words, this is kind of a a picture of what the world actually is like on a normal day, sadly enough. So here's the quick overview. We're going to go back there, but here's the quick overview of chapters 4 and 5. Okay, um, and to, to help us, because a picture is sometimes worth a thousand words. Now, the pictures I'm about to show you don't do justice to this this like crazy, wonderful, imaginative, mind-boggling picture that we get in the book of Revelation. But there are some artists at some point, I don't know the artist's name, so I can't give them credit, made some renderings of these pictures in the book of Revelation. But as John gets caught up through the doorway, okay, sees a vision of the throne room. Chapter four, John's sees, Jesus shows him the throne and it's surrounded by this rainbow-like emerald of jasper and ruby. Okay, so you can put, why don't you put that picture up there? And so be, uh, surrounded by God's throne, uh, there, this rainbow-like um, emerald or whatever it might be, whether it's light or actual emerald, it's kind of represented, what does a rainbow represent? Well, the rainbow, as it originally appeared, was a, was a symbol of God's promises and a symbol of God's mercy. Also, the, the multifaceted colored nature of the rainbow does represent, as we see in this picture, people of all different nations and nationalities. And so we get this double picture in heaven that all nations will be surrounding God's throne, worshiping him, and, and worshiping him for his mercy and his grace and the fulfillment of his promises. And there are these 24 elders that are seen surrounding the throne, um, which, in most likelihood, represent the completion of god 's people, uh, the the twelve tribes of Israel, and the completion of God, the Gentiles coming into a place of faith, uh, the perfected, so to speak uh, completion of god 's people under his rule and reign and another thing that 's described in this chapter is this really interesting image of there 's a sea of glass, and they depicted it a little bit, you can kind of see see it there, but when you approach Revelation, you have to ask yourself, what do these symbols mean? Remember, Revelation is largely symbolic, purposely so, in order to represent something that uh, God had spoken to his people throughout the, the, the Old Testament scriptures, which is the book of the Bible. In fact, their Bible was the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, what the sea represented or the watery chaos at creation was this, this place of chaos and disorder and in both the book of Revelation that we'll see later on and in the book of Daniel, the sea represented the place from which the beast came to destroy, uh, destroy the earth and destroy God's people. So it is this place of chaos and destruction and a place where there is actually a lack of peace. And so we see this picture of heavenly worship happening in the context of evil that still exists in the world. So we have this picture of worship Yet the acknowledgement, and we'll see this in what um, the saints will be saying to God in a moment, that the, there is evil at work in the world, yet God is working in the midst of all of this evil. Okay, another interesting image. You can see those uh, seraphim, cherubim, those weird bird-like kind of creatures. Well, they're, they're, they were called, in the book of Revelation, they're called living creatures, and they have different faces, like the face of a man or, a, or of some type of animal, and these are pictures that we get actually from Isaiah and Ezekiel as well. You see these same kind of images representing kind of the animal kingdom and the completion of God's kingdom, mankind. But really the point of it is that all of creation itself is going to, to be uh, subjugated, or not subjugated, subject themselves into, into a place of worship before the throne of God. So there's a lot more in that, but that's kind of a brief overview of the picture of what we're looking at when we get to this throne room. So once we get to chapter 5, we see that the creator, the one sitting on the throne, has a scroll in his hand. And the scroll represents the plan that God has for bringing about redemption to all of humanity, all of creation, and all of the cosmos, in fact. And there's only one person uh, who appears, one one being in all of heaven, when all heaven and earth is searched for, there's only one being who can open the scroll. And that is seen as a lamb that was slain, representing Jesus and the blood that was shed for the redemption of humanity and for all of actually all of, all of, all of creation itself. It's, and then there's seven seals on, this, um, on the scroll. I think there's a picture of a scroll here. you, you can pull that up. Uh, you, there are seven seals on this scroll that need to be opened. and, and over to as those seals are opened, it, it corresponds with a release of certain dramatic events on the earth, often destructive events. And when when we look at the book of Revelation, it's actually organized. You have these seven seals, and then there are these seven bowls that are poured out, and later there's these seven plagues. And um, as you study it, you'll see there's a lot of consistency between the two, or between the three of them. And it most likely here are three different perspectives on the same kind of events that that are going to happen. There are types of events that are going to transpire, that have transpired, that are transpiring, and will transpire on the earth. One of the images we also see in there is the image of a harp and a bowl. So these elders, in one in one hand, or they're not saying in a hand, but they're holding a bowl uh, which represents the incense, the prayers of God's people coming up to the earth, and this harp. So did you ever uh, hear of like or, or see those images in um, like the cartoons where it's like you get a harp and you go to heaven like he gives you a harp like by, by far side this week so it was like they're handing out harps to everyone coming into into heaven and they were handing out accordions that people were going to hell so uh, the, but it's like this idea in like culture that we get a harp but what it's it's more you're not going to like necessarily get a harp when you get to heaven however the, sim, the symbolism of the harp is worship. That's what the harp represents. It's making music unto the Lord and singing these songs of worship. And this is what heaven is going to be like, is there's going to be this extravagant worship and the bowl representing the prayers of the saints on earth. And so we see this mysterious connection in the heavenly realms of this dynamic synergistic relationship between worship and prayer. So you may have even heard the phrase. I don't know if you've heard this phrase. Uh, just just by raising hand, I'm curious. How many have heard the phrase of a harp and bowl ministry? Has anyone heard that? Okay, like okay, just a couple of you. So yeah, it's not very. I haven't heard it very very much myself, but a few times. But a harp and bowl ministry, or a way of doing, um, yeah, doing any kind of ministry, simply represents a way of combining worship and prayer in a way that is reflective of the way that worship happens in heaven. So it's kind of like modeling our our way of doing ministry based on the, the, the picture that we get, this imagery in Revelation. And I found that often, if you're having a hard time getting to a place of prayer, is that if you start in a place of worship, it will empower the way that you pray. Um, I mean, just this week in, in our small group, we started off, we like to pray, but there seemed seem to be so much more power in some sense when we start with worship and then engage into prayer there's there's power in that, and I don't know you know and you, you may have heard like people some people will say to me I need to go to church to pray and I'd say that oh you can pray anywhere. However, that said, when you're in a an um, an environment of worship, like when we're worshiping God, and the whole community is worshiping together, and you can experience the presence of God, when you you can use that. That's a unique opportunity for you to pray, where God's empowering your prayers, there's a harp and bowl kind of thing going on there. And so I'd encourage you, if, say if you're a little bit disengaged in worship or whatever, maybe having trouble praying during the week, use the time of worship that we have here, whether it's at the beginning, middle, end, we have a significant amount of worship purposely as part of our service, like maybe at the end when everyone's going out eating a, eating a cracker. You can stand before the Lord and you can say, hey, Lord, here's, here's my prayer. There, there's something that's released in the heaven. It's mysterious. I don't understand it completely, but the prayer and worship somehow go together. And we're going to be doing more of that in the new year, which I'm excited about, even outside of a Sunday service. So let me give you an example. Okay, Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Let's, let's read that. And actually, let's say this together out loud, uh, kind of as an act of... Uh, Worship just with our words. Not gonna, I'm not going to sing any music. I'm not going to sing it. But let's look. So if you could pull that up, um, I don't have to get the guitar out. But. Okay, ready? Let's say it together. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And so this is, the, this is like a, just a glimpse and there's many instances of this kind of worship where Jesus himself is exalted as the King of Kings, the one through his death and resurrection has made a way for all of humanity from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come before the throne and honor and worship the Lord. The book of Revelation is basically organized around the glorification of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember, that is what Revelation, the mystery of Revelation, and what Revelation about, is helping people see Jesus for who he is. Not so much giving you a guidebook that you can write novels about, or write movies about in the future, about knowing that this happens and that. like That is not the point of Revelation. The point is to help us understand and get a glimpse out of our earthly perspective and into the heavenly realms of who Jesus really is, how reality exists now and will exist for eternity. This, this book un- just opens up for us what the world is actually like. And in the end, Jesus Christ is gonna stand as king over and, and authority over all things, over all people. And we have a choice whether to worship him or not. And one day every knee will bow or tongue confess, whether they choose to or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we finally get to chapter six and John is watching as Jesus, represented as this lamb who was slain, opens the seven seals. He is the only one able to open the seven seals and these seven seals being, uh, again, corresponding to these horrible events that are going to transpire. And whether that actually means that these things are going to need to happen before Jesus comes back again, which they will, it means that, or that Jesus is the only one who can undo or break the power of all of these wicked things, which is also, also very true, um, or maybe it just means both. This is kind of the picture we get as we uh, look at the person of Jesus and what is to come. Okay, so we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, so let's take a look at them. Why don't we pull up that little image there? And they these are ways, this is the, de- depicted graphically here. These are ways in which the evil powers of the world, they're given, um, that are empowered by the devil, by, by evil, in order to reap about destruction and death on, on the earth. And so you see these four horses. So there's the white horse, and there's the crown. It's like representing the conquering kings and kingdoms, the oppressive governments that, exist, that exist, existed then, that were in the context of which it was written, primarily the Roman Empire, but now the oppressive governments uh, that oppress people today. So it's this uh, kind of regime kind of imagery. The red horse represents the violence, it has the bow, uh, the violence, oppression that comes about, whether directly or indirectly from these oppressive empires or just people, just lead, things that would lead people to kill one another. So it it could be representative of what happened at the University of Nevada or when there's a shooting in the street of Philadelphia, the red horse is released and to, to reap about killing and murder and evil. The black horse represents, as you look at it, the economic problems that exist and often it fuels a lot of the violence that happens in the world today. If there, there's economic greed, motivation at the, at the heart of say child sex trafficking or um, you know, the drug trafficking or you know, any evil empire. That that's it, that in the world today, there is, there is economic motivation behind that. And in that particular image, you see the disparity between the rich and the poor. And so all of this brings about destruction to humanity. And then finally, the last horse is called the pale horse. And whether it's environmental, directly caused by sin, by people's sin, or indirectly, kind of represents plague and death and destruction that come. You could, you could probably learn, um, like even through animals. So like, the, the you know the number one uh, animal killer in the world today? You know what it is? Anyone know what that is? Yeah, it's a mosquito. Yeah, you got it. Somebody said it. it the mosquito, it kills millions and millions of people every day. So you could, you could probably classify uh, all the fevers, plagues, like COVID-19 probably. I mean, you could go to town, you could go crazy with it, but it just represents kind of the four horsemen are representative, symbolic of the kind of ways that Humanity and the world is just broken under the power of sin and death, and so these four horsemen come attacking, and they they come corresponding with the opening of those initial um, um, seals that are broken. Okay, so this is now we get where we get to Revelation six nine. So let's take a look at, look at that together. If you could pull up Revelation six chapter nine, it says this: When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under "'Under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain "'because of the word of God "'and the testimony they had maintained, "'they called out in a loud voice, "'How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, "'until you judge the inhabitants of the earth "'and avenge our blood?' "'Then each of them was given a white robe, "'and they were told to wait a little longer,' Until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. In fact, um, this picture right here, what we see here, is the only clear instance in Scripture that shows us what happens to believers after they die. So in, be- in between, there's kind of this question, you know, what happens to you before the kingdom comes again? And this is one of the only real clear pictures that we get. It's this, this chapter here, uh, Revelation 6. And so, and, but, but this particular uh, picture, it may be representative of all believers, but it also focuses in, particularly on those who had been killed. So these are not only people persecuted for their faith, but who had been martyrs. These are the martyrs who had been killed because of their testimony for Jesus. And it says that they're found at the altar, And the altar, in the Old Testament um, picture sense of what that represented, that was a place of worship, a place that ultimately represented the presence of God. In other words, they stood in a place of worship in the presence of God, those who had been slain. And they, they somehow had an awareness of what had happened on earth and were asking, asking for biblical justice. And part of the good news, why judgment is good news, is because when there is evil that exists in the world, when there is a savior or someone who is able to stop the oppression from happening. That is good news, that Jesus will one day, one day come, and he will do away with all oppression, all violence, all evil, and take the horsemen and put them in the horses, what they, they, what they represent, and put them in, the place, in their place. But, but for now, there is a waiting time. It's as if there's a tipping point. You can see it, like for whatever reason, God looks at like those who have been killed until it reaches this, this tipping point or its fulfillment. And it's reminiscent of an Old Testament scripture, if you're familiar with it, when God would judge the Canaanites or the people who were living in the Old Testament, um, in, in the promised land, it said that the sin of the Amorites I forget one it might have been just the Canaanites, had not reached its fulfillment, in other words, God was waiting for a point at which its full sin it was full the sin and death was in full bloom, and then he would, he would hack it hack it at its, uh, you know, at its root there and so that 's the same kind of principle that we see Jesus saying when evil is coming, and there's like a fullness of people being murdered for their faith that 's going to happen, but the point being while we live in a time of death, if we look at all these images, we live in a time of death and destruction and evil. There will come a time when God will make things all right again. And in that meantime, it's not ours to take vengeance. So God gave me a little uh, conviction when I wanted to, you know, you know, when I was driving and I had that chance to you know, drive a little bit in a way to show them, hey, you know, what you were doing is wrong. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You either drive a little slower for the person behind you, or you drive a little faster if you're the one behind the person, or you give them a little symbol with your, you know, your face. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, but when I, it's not ours. So it's a little instance. It's not ours to take vengeance. In fact, the Lord convicted me in my Bible study this week and during a time I was reading in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 138. Um, King David says this, the Lord, the Lord will vindicate me. And so what does this call for in our our behalf? It's it's a nonviolent response, that as God's people, we aren't to repay evil for evil. We aren't to wage war like the world does. We don't need to respond in selfishness. We don't need to act out in road rage. We don't have to repay any kind of evil for evil. We can even forgive those who have wronged us, no matter what that might be, even in the face of, of death. Let's pull up Romans 12. He, Paul just says it so well. As he kind of takes he takes the theology that he had just built up in this entire book, this incredible letter that just lays out the theology of the church and he he's applying it. And he's saying, okay, now that what Jesus has done for us because of the lamb that was slain and his grace and mercy that we see in pictorial form in revelation, he says it and summarizes it so well. He says, "Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath." For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God is the original avenger. <laughs> See it right there, right there in Scripture, Romans twelve nineteen. See, our peace, my friends, is not taking; is not taken in taking revenge, but our peace is found in our posture of worship. Are you stressed out by the war and violence in your city or in the country that you care about? Worship the Lord. Are you feeling dismay or is your heart broken because of the way that someone's been treating you, perhaps unjustly? Worship the Lord. Maybe you're suffering from physical illness and pain and the death and destruction that happens from being part of the decaying world. Worship the Lord. Perhaps you're having money problems and you're feeling the disparity that so exists in this world today. Worship the Lord. What if we, instead of worried worrying, we built the habit of worship? This is what the community, in the, and we don't understand, this is what the community of God does, is we don't give ourselves the worldly ways, we don't run after things the way the world does, we worship the Lord. And we allow the mystery of Christmas, the mystery of revelation for God to handle the things that are too great for us to understand. We don't have easy answers for why each of those things exist and at what time. None of us, who among us can give us a a detailed, accurate answer before the Lord of why evil exists in the world today in the forms that it does. None of us can see the big picture. But there is one who does, who sits on the throne, who can see past, present, and future simultaneously, and we can say, well, we trust you. We trust that you know and we're going to worship. And somehow in our place of worship, it empowers us to then go into the war and bring about the kingdom of God. In fact, next week we'll talk about the second part of how we overcome the enemy. Revelation 12 says there's two things. By the blood of the lamb, which we worship God for, and the word of their testimony. But we'll save that for next week. The mystery here as we get ready for communion And um, I encourage you, if you want to participate with us, if you are a follower of Jesus, given your life to him, surrendered your life to him as an act of worship and submission, recognizing that he has made things right between you and God because of his work on the cross, not yours, we're going to take communion together. But the mystery, how about this for a mystery, that Jesus himself made himself subject to the four horsemen of the apocalypse in order to overcome them and conquer and as we take communion, I don't know if, if you could grab me one, somebody who has it, that'd be helpful. Um, as we take communion together, this is what we do. We remember and we celebrate that Jesus' overcoming of death and destruction of all the horses happened in his sacrifice, the, the lamb that was slain. And it is a great mystery Even Paul, who understood probably better than anyone in history how this all worked together, says this is a great mystery. But we celebrate that today. Let's take a moment. We're going to take communion in just a moment. But let's pause and allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Perhaps there is something in our hearts, an avenging that we want to do on our own or a worry that we need to lay down. But Lord, search our hearts. Know us. See if there is any sinful way within me. Help us turn to you again. This might be the first time you would say, Jesus... I need you. I need your mercy in my life and I give my life to you. You can partake in this meal together. And if that's you, I'd love to talk talk with you. Please come speak with me after the service. But as we move into this time, let's reflect and ponder the mystery of Christmas, this Advent. Jesus came and he broke his Bread as a representation of his body for the disciples at the Last Supper. Made himself subject to death so that we could have life. Let's remember by eating the bread.